This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. There's nothing new about our journalists suffering the scorn of the public who routinely rate them as poorly as the politicians they report on in surveys of public trust. But what they're really like is rarely surveyed. On Media Watch this week, we run through the biggest effort yet to find out who our journalists are, what they believe, and what sort of things they face these days in their work. But first, we look at an aspect of our justice system that's long been a bugbear for the public and reporters alike, and one that's kept the media's lawyers busy over the years. But a new minister is promising new thinking. Let's talk about alcohol. You've got an announcement you want to make with us this morning. Tell me about what changes are on the way. Yes, so the issue with alcohol in New Zealand that we've got right now is that if you, sitting in, for example... That was the Justice Minister Kiritapu Allen responding to a question from TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay, filling in as the host of TVNZ's Q&A show last Sunday. And the announcement the minister had lined up there for the show was a change to allow communities to have more say on the availability of alcohol for sale in their backyard. And the changes would also neuter the liquor industry's power to appeal local sales policies. And having lined up that exclusive for TVNZ, it featured pretty prominently in their news bulletins later that day. It may soon be easier for communities to oppose liquor companies setting up shop in their neighbourhood. That's a key message behind proposed changes to alcohol laws revealed today by the government. So the government would have been pretty pleased with that key message getting across like that after it was unveiled exclusively on Q&A. Jessica Mudge Mackay also pointed out that the government was, however, kicking the can down the road on the tricky subject of alcohol advertising, marketing and sports sponsorship. So expect much more vigorous debate revved up by vested interests when that law change crops up next year. Kititapu Allen also told Q&A she was also getting on the tools to tweak other aspects of our justice system that she said were falling short. On News Talk ZB on Monday morning, breakfast host Mike Hosking also challenged Kiritapu Allen about those alcohol law changes, but also this. I gave a case on here last week of a bloke who was involved in three drive-by shootings. He's got Home D. So you get to drive by three different houses, shoot at them all, and you get Home D because you had a poor upbringing. Is that the sort of justice system you're proud of? Kiritapu Allen went on to tell Mike Hosking that the Justice Minister can't interfere in the sentencing of specific cases in which the judges have discretion, so giving him the right answer to the wrong question. But on TVNZ's Q&A show 24 hours earlier, another surprise came right at the end of Kiritapu Allen's lengthy interview when Jessica Much Mackay asked her about controversial hate speech laws, which stalled under the previous minister responsible, Chris Farfoy, who simply stopped talking about the issue in his final months before he quit to become a lobbyist recently. In stark contrast to that, Kiritapu Allen told Jessica Much Mackay this... I guarantee that I'll be introducing law that I intend to have concluded and put into law by the next election, yes. We'll have more on that here on Media Watch when those laws emerge and the limits of freedom of expression get an airing that will inevitably be pretty heated. But Jessica Much Mackay also put Kitatapu Allen on the spot on another area where the media has a strong vested interest. If you've ever watched news stories from a courtroom, you've probably heard terms like prominent New Zealander or well-known sports star to describe otherwise unnamed defendants. For many, name suppression seems to be applied unfairly and inconsistently. Name suppression is also an area where the judges also have discretion and they exercise it in a way that sometimes deeply frustrates the media. But Jessica Much Mackay probably wasn't expecting such a direct answer to this question. Is name suppression working? 
I don't think so. Kedatapu Allen went on to say it was unfair that high-profile and wealthy people could get name suppression for a range of reasons. But what would she do about it? I've sought uh, urgent advice on this particular area, as I, I agree with you. I don't think it's just, I don't think it's fair, and I don't think that New Zealanders looking in on the system think that the system is working adequately either. Well, we'll see if urgent action follows that urgently requested advice. But that would have been music to the ears of many in the media who would love to be able to name more of the people who seek to keep their identity secret in court and some of whom go to great lengths and expense to do so. Now, just this week it was revealed that PR professional and former National Party President Michelle Bogue went as far as the Supreme Court to keep her name out of reports of a high-profile trial. But the Herald also reported that her bid for name suppression had cost her close to $100,000. Well, Section 200 of the Criminal Procedure Act sets out eight grounds on which a judge might grant name suppression to a defendant. It's automatic in cases of sexual offending in order to protect the victim's privacy, even if the victims want to waive their rights. But the most often cited one these days is the one that says this. Publication would be likely to cause extreme hardship to the person charged with or convicted of, or acquitted of the offence, or any person connected with that person. Being well-known or well-connected does not of itself mean exposure of anyone's identity will result in extreme hardship, but good lawyers can conjure up a case for that. To take the example of Michelle Bogue, she had been due to appear as a Crown witness in that trial of a well-known businessman who was eventually found guilty of sexual assault and received a prison sentence. Michelle Bogue did, via her lawyers, deny any involvement in the criminal conspiracy, which eventually led to that, and she insisted her reputation would be unjustly damaged by disclosure because her name had been misused by another PR professional who was caught up in the case, who was not prosecuted because he supplied crucial evidence as a Crown witness. So, even if it seems unfair if others without the means to pursue name suppression don't have the option, is it any less fair for those who do, given the media's appetite for such stories? I asked the University of Canterbury's Professor of Law, Ursula Chia. If the Minister's getting urgent advice about her, I hope she's being referred to the Law Commission report on this matter back before 2011, which was the last time this was looked at very closely by the Commission. They did a good job. The uh, Criminal Procedure Act was amended and a special part was put into it dealing specifically with suppression. Uh, the system is based on open justice, Criminal trials, of course, run within the system. They're intended to uh, allow the state to prosecute crime uh, in an open atmosphere. But within that system, the accused person is entitled to fair trial. Uh, Suppression operates as an exception to the open justice principle. So I believe that although occasionally perhaps um, the odd judge gets it wrong, Uh, the system is working okay. But Gavin Ellis, uh, former editor-in-chief at the New Zealand Herald, he's pointed out this week that roughly twice as many interim and final suppression orders ordered in this country than in Australia. Doesn't that make us an outlier if courts are ordering that many name suppressions? New Zealand is unusual in the world in that we have suppression and most other jurisdictions don't have it. They have different ways of dealing with issues of fair trial and so on, but they still have to do that in some way. That's the issue for any um, government that might be looking at changing suppression laws. But um, what bothers me is that the media, when they report on suppression and about suppression, are completely self-interested and don't acknowledge their bias in this respect 
And uh, so I think the reporting about it is often extreme and exaggerated. Uh, As the media and the minister seem to be agreeing in that interview last weekend, there are several grounds which people who have good lawyers can make a persuasive case that the exposure, the publication of, of their name and identity will cause them disproportionate harm. The reputation of people who have wealth and status will be higher than uh, lower economic social groups or professions that pay less. First of all, everybody, of course, is entitled to apply for suppression, but they have to um, make out grounds that show they would suffer extreme hardship. It's not just undue, uh, embarrassing effects. Now, to focus on the argument about Uh, people with money, rich people. It's a um, red herring in terms of suppression, in my view. Well, but it's people people with status, though, isn't it? Status, maybe if we're looking at professions and people who have something connected to their name that's of value and might lose it. So anyone who is in a high-paying professional job or holds public office or a sports person, you know, we know there's been lots of cases like that where people have had at least interim name suppression given. And that doesn't seem fair if you're uh, of a a profession that seems not to have uh, that sort of status attached to it. All right. First of all, Colin, um, almost everybody will get interim name suppression under this system. They're entitled to it um, in the initial stages. um, And that is because the law is intended to let them go home, talk to their families, uh, let them know what's happened, put their affairs in order and so on. Um, The issue for them is when they come back into the system and that's when they have to make any grounds to keep that suppression going. The second thing is that this is an access to justice issue. It's not just connected to suppression. It applies to uh, anybody wanting access to legal advice to engage with the legal system. Um, And that problem has always been there and continues to be there. And if this government can fix that up, that would be a great thing. But if the baby is chucked out with the bathwater and suppression orders are somehow uh, reduced extremely or or eliminated, there would be huge issues around fair trial, and uh, that's why I don't think one can be done without the other. Uh, If you're going to throw out suppression orders, uh, there's no way that you can do that without still making sure that fair trial rights are protected. Otherwise, the basic need for the justice system to try crime on our behalf uh, would be completely destroyed. Well, you mentioned there that uh, the media have a big vested interest, uh, which is, I guess, you know, that they want to be able to make public uh, the names of people in these cases because uh, there will be public interest in uh, the media content they can create from it. But um, they would probably believe that uh, that aligns with the public interest in open justice and knowing um, the, the names of people. And as long as reporting is responsible, then that would be fair enough. Um, And they'd be right about that, and the current legislation allows for that because when a judge um, has an application for suppression in front of them, they have to follow a two-stage process. They have to, first of all, work out whether it looks as though there's going to be one of what we call the threshold issues, extreme hardship, that sort of thing. Um, And then, in the second stage, they weigh up the competing interests of the applicant and the public, and they take into account all of the context, and that'll include how serious the offence the views of the victims are taken into account then, and public interest in knowing the character of the offender, all of those sorts of things, and open justice is also part of that uh, second stage of the test as well. So I would argue that the current system allows for that to happen. And finally, uh, the media would often possibly believe or say uh, they are on the side of victims. Uh, Do you think the media don't often acknowledge that when 
suppression is granted, there could be other people, like family members of the accused, associates, the businesses they work for. They could all be victims of the exposure of the name of someone. Uh, and yeah. that the, the media and their desire to make things public uh, in, what, in what they believe is the public interest are overlooking those sorts of victims? Yes, I do think they are. I mean, the most well-known argument is the one about extreme hardship and fair trial is another one. But um, casting suspicion on other people it can also be taken into account. Um, it's also extreme hardship not only of the person charged but any person connected to that person, and that would cover family or, or, or friends or colleagues. They've tried to put all of those things into the legislation as well, but you're absolutely right. The media don't acknowledge that enough. Bit of a surprise right at the end of that interview on TVNZ's Q&A show uh, last weekend. Um, the minister revealing she wants the hate speech laws on the books by uh, the end of this parliament. Yes, I was quite surprised. I thought that uh, the hate speech issue had yeah, been put on the back burner at least. Uh, it's interesting that the government's very interested in sorting out hate speech but is quite happy for name suppression to come off to subject people to hate speech even though they haven't been found guilty of an offence at that stage. And I'd be interested to see, very interested to see what the outcome is. That was the University of Canterbury's Professor of Law, Ursula Chia, talking to me there about proposals to change name suppression in our courts. Photo opportunities have their uses for politicians who want to get the media's attention and then exposure, and the media can also make use of the images and content these contrived events create. So, for example, you can expect to see recent images of Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern in Antarctica in the upcoming TV news reports of the next political opinion poll if results look like freezing out her party. Likewise, images of National Party leader Christopher Luxon squirting out a soft-serve ice cream during his stint on the tools at McDonald's last week, with a voiceover about party support going soft or serving up a result that could see him drive through to be the Beehive's Big Mac, or whatever you get the picture. But there are questions also for the media and how they handle these events created for their benefit, or even solicit them. We are encouraging him to try and um, do some more photo opportunities. We had that um, boxing um, scenario a few weeks ago, and people need to get to know him. That was TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay on Morning Report's political panel on RNZ National on Friday last week. Now, people who thought that amounted to TVNZ advising the National Party leader on his media strategy reacted pretty strongly. But TVNZ told complainants this week, and Media Watch, Jessica Much Mackay had been misinterpreted. When Jessica Much Mackay told them we had encouraged the National Party leader to do more photo opportunities, she meant all media, not TVNZ specifically, because TVNZ says all media encourage persons of interest to undertake media engagements. And TVNZ's spokesperson also told us TVNZ receives complaints of this nature from both sides of the political spectrum, which, they say, suggests balance in TVNZ's reporting. Though a good way to suggest balance to the audience is not to suggest PR strategies of any kind to any political leaders. On this week's Midweek Media Watch, Hayden Donnell took a look at that and the case of another political leader who seemingly determined not to engage with the media as much as possible, as RNZ's podcast The Detail discovered this week. Hello? Hi, is this Wayne? Who's that? Hi Wayne, this is Bonnie calling from RNZ's The Detail podcast. How are you? Can't talk to you. 
That was on Midweek Media Watch, which was on nights last Wednesday. It's also on our webpage, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed if you missed it. Now, public figures and organisations stonewalling the media like that is a major frustration for journalists these days. And, as we've heard many times here on Media Watch, there are also growing and persistent claims of pro-government media bias because of increased public funding of the media and journalism under this government. But apart from the fact that their numbers have been shrinking year on year for years, what do we really know about New Zealand's professional journalists these days? Well, this week, the most comprehensive survey of them reported back some preliminary findings, five years after the last such effort. Conducted by Massey University, the Worlds of Journalism 2.0, Journalists in Aotearoa New Zealand survey, harvested data from almost a quarter of the estimated 1,600 journalists working full-time here. As the name suggests, it's part of a global effort that was kicked off 10 years ago and is now extended to 120 countries. The respondents answered questions about who they are, where they work, and also about their professional practices and their political and social attitudes, as well as their sense of security and satisfaction. Massey University's Associate Professor James Hollings crunched the data and he spoke to me about what it revealed about our journalists and the media they work in these days. All the trends that people have talked about over the last few years, huge growth in online journalism, new sorts of startups. We're seeing that in New Zealand with Newsroom, spin off, something like Crux in, in, in Queenstown, you know, really interesting new things starting up. Um, plus, the traditional strong um, organisations still there Stuff, NZME, RNZ, TVNZ, Otago Daily Times. Those are all still there, but there's increasing diversity in, in, in the journalism market as well. well one of the big issues we've heard about, we've heard journalists talk about the bleeding of experienced journalists out of the business. I mean, Target had kind of picked off to work in communications or public relations or government comms in particular. Uh, is that trend still continuing? That trend's been there for a long time. So what you see is a lot of young journalists coming through, which has always been the case, is a dropping off in the mid-years. Yeah, that's fascinating. But you can see that in, there's a chart in, yeah. in the document that you've done, and there is a real dip when when you hit the age of, mm. say, 40 to 50, uh, a, a kind of slump, really, and then goes back again. And then this rise again through the 50s and 60s, so they've got a, quite a strong cohort of sort of 50s and 60s doing journalism in New Zealand. And I think that's the sort of trend you see in other countries as well, where journalists have maybe gone out, out of the industry for a while then they've come back to realise what their real true passion is and they're finding a way back into the industry to do their thing. So there's this real phenomenon I guess in places like the UK called hyperlocal of older journalists often coming back in and wanting to set up small community newspapers or find some way back in the industry where they can practice their craft. The length of service is another thing. People are asking, how long have you been in this business? And I guess you'd see if it was an industry under pressure, that would come down if people are you know, having to leave a lot younger ones coming in, as you mentioned. Is is that overall average out, that length of service dropping? So people have been in it? No, that's for... stayed about the same, I think, overall. But if there's still a real core of people who are in it for a good dozen or more years on average, uh, and some a lot longer than that, that's a good thing. Yeah, I think one thing that comes through strongly is just the sense of strong professional identity within New Zealand journalists, that there are is a real core there that have stuck it out and staying true to what journalism is and what it's what it's there for. Well, one finding you've headlined uh, in your uh, press release is uh, described as a shattering of the glass ceiling by uh, women in journalism. Historically, uh, media was a, a man's world in a way, overwhelmingly. Um, the last survey uh, of Worlds of Journalism showed a significant rise. This time, are, are we at 
parity? And, and is it across all levels, senior levels as well as junior? According to the to the results, yes. Um, I'm sure there'd be some people who say that it's not like that or not like that within my organisation. But overall, statistically, females certainly are in the majority of the numbers of, of people in journalism in New Zealand. And they have attained equity in terms of the rank that they're getting to, the levels of organisation, and in terms of pay. Effectively, that glass ceiling has been has been broken. Mm. And now mm. for ethnicity, the other thing that's been identified here, the most noticeable change uh, you've said is uh, increase in Maori. So now one in ten journalists in the industry identify as, as Maori, uh, and that's you say is a twenty percent increase on the survey five years ago. That's that's a huge um, huge win. I think it's obviously still not enough. I think people are working pretty hard to do that. Um, well, in fact, in the next survey. Five years from now, that might show up because we have things like the Terito program, which is you know media companies together uh, training cadetships right. and so on to employ. Yeah, and I think it shows the work that organisations like Stuff and Radio New Zealand and TV New Zealand and others have been doing. That that's starting to show through too. Um, there's a lot more to be done, I think, there as, as well. Though, so let's not get carried away. Yeah. Uh, Pacifica is still very low. That's a real problem. You know, less, around less than two percent of journalists are Pacifica journalists. Asian journalists are still quite low. Um, Around four point five percent, if you if you if you include Asian Indian with with Asian, but you know there's a strong uh, New Zealand Indian press and New Zealand Asian press here, so um, we need to try and build those numbers. Because your document here says uh, the most noticeable change is the increase in Māori journalists, but the thing that leapt out at me on that table was those declaring themselves as New Zealand European background, uh, down from eighty seven percent in twenty fifteen, to in this survey uh, about two thirds identifying as New Zealand European. That is, to me, the the most eye-catching finding there, 87%. I mean, overwhelmingly in 2015, down to just two-thirds. What, what does that tell us? That's an interesting point, Colin. You're absolutely right to pick that out. That is, I think it tells us that, well, certainly that the workforce has got a lot smaller. Those, it might not be that so much that we're recruiting less New Zealand Europeans. It might just mean that they've left more quickly than mm-hmm. the others. Well, certainly the workforce has become a lot more diverse, that's partly because I think recruitment's become more diverse, but it's possibly also because a lot of those people have left the industry. One thing that will be of specific interest to you as an educator, mm-hmm. uh, when asked about the highest level of education in the background of these journalists, 24% of journalists responding to the survey say their highest qualification is a master's degree. Uh, that is remarkable. I mean, a lot of those will be master's degrees in journalism, I'm guessing, the sort of thing that you teach, uh, that just didn't used to be an option if you go back a, a generation. That quite a remarkable level of education, isn't it, for uh, any workforce? Yeah, it is. It's huge, really, isn't it? And journalists are, I think, becoming hopefully better educated. Um, Do we know overall. if the better educated ones are better paid? We haven't done that analysis. We could actually have a look at that. We haven't actually gone down that route so far. But that is a good thing to look at, yeah. Now, a big mm. issue in journalism, say, this past couple of years has been the hostility and, you know, at times abuse, some of it just online, but also physical, particularly in things like that occupation of parliament. You know, there's reference in the document here to people saying they've had specific threats, death threats, rape threats. What has the survey told you about the level of harassment and hostility that journalists in New Zealand uh, are finding themselves facing at this point in time? Um, well, this is the first time we've asked these questions, and they're being asked of journalists worldwide. So we haven't actually been able to compare it to what it was like previously, and I'm sure there was stuff previously, but it does really jump out at you that it's it's pretty bad. I mean, just looking at the the mean scores, if you like, which gives you a sense of how, how strong it is, um, 
high high scores for things like demeaning and hateful speech, questioning a personal morality, particularly for women. Questioning a personal morality. That's right. That sounds slightly <laughs> euphemistic, um, but I think I know what you're getting that's at. That's right. Yeah. And anecdotally, I think I'm sure you're hearing this as well. But journalists are really getting it from certain sections of the public. No, let's kill the messenger type thing. So, and this is coming through strongly that journalists are, are getting a lot of this, and not just from, unfortunately, not just from the public, but sometimes from each other as well. Journalists critiquing or attacking other journalists, and I think that's a real problem. Is that if some of the news organisations need to think a little bit harder about how they can support and protect their journalists from these kinds of abuse and online attack because this sort of stuff has a cumulative effect on journalists. And I've seen this and I've heard stories about this that journalists are feeling, yeah, you can tolerate a few of these threats or attacks, but if it's going on month after month after month, it really wears you down. There's a sort of a PTSD effect going on, I think, there with some of them. Um, And we really need to think hard about this, how we deal with this. Uh, The other thing the survey takes into account is aspects of journalistic practice. Are you finding any uh, big changes in, in people's responses on those questions? There's been studies done of journalists for the last 70-odd years which show that they generally fall into one of three three roles. One is what they call the watchdog role. Mm-hmm. One is what they call the mobiliser role, people who think that journalists should mobilise society for one cause or another. A- advocacy. Yeah. Advocacy, yeah. yeah. A third role is what they call the, sometimes called the accommodator role. In other words, that journalists are basically just there to provide entertainment and information for people. The fourth role I was going to get to was what they call sometimes called the neutral observer role, which is simply just reflect society as it is and don't try and adjust things or change things. Journalists have shifted. They used to be, five years ago, quite strongly about sort of more the neutral observer role and with quite a strong emphasis on the accommodator role. In other words, we're here to sort of provide entertainment, information, you know, meet meet the client's needs, if you like, that Mm -hmm. sort of approach. They're increasingly sort of seeing their role as being the more watchdog role. That's interesting. We've seen an uptick in criticism of the media from outside groups. You know, this uh, suspicion or accusation that journalists are not just there to uh, reflect society and and to you know help people tell their stories and so on, but that they are actively trying to change society or support or back certain things. But there is a remarkable finding in here, it was remarkable to me, when asked about whether part of the role is supporting government policy, 10% of the respondents said that it, it was. Doesn't that play into the hands of critics who feel the media isn't neutral and journalists aren't always uh, going to this without bias or even trying to, and that because of their own personal aspects? Yeah, it's an interesting point. But I think there's always going to be journalists that think their role is to change society, advocate for one thing or another. And it may be that sometimes aligns with government policy. There will always be journalists that think that it's important to support government policy. In some countries in the world, that's a hugely important part of journalists' role, particularly in parts of Asia and parts of Africa sometimes. But isn't it alarming to you that as many as one in ten journalists who answered that question, that the part of their role actually is supporting government policy? I'd be surprised if any, particularly news-based journalist, uh, was was prepared to say that's part of the role. Uh, Well, probably partly the way the question's phrased. I mean, these are questions which are given to us from from the world of journalism centre. So, but that question can be interpreted slightly different ways, can't it? You could say, you know, if it's a government policy that I think is important, like um, stopping more terrorist shootings, then of course I'd support that government policy. In the mind of the person answering this survey, they might have thought a particular policy or all policies. Yeah, so we'll take an example, yeah. say the gun buyback yeah. uh, thing, which had required a bit of explanation, was criticised mm. by groups that felt it was impinging upon the freedom of gun owners, unnecessarily restrictive or not very effective. So a lot to explain there. So perhaps in, they might have interpreted 
their role in doing that as, you know, that that would have the effect of supporting government policy. There's a difference between journalists that are actively propagandising for a particular point of view and journalists which are doing the watchdog role of asking difficult questions about something that's going on. And they can often be mistaken for having an agenda. Yes, of course they've got an agenda. Their agenda is to find out what's going on and analyse it and critique it. Mm. Their agenda is not necessarily to push for the Green Party or the National Party. And I think one is sometimes mistaken for the other. And it's easier to target a journalist or label a journalist as being an activist, or in fact they're just asking difficult questions which you don't like. And what about mm. other concerns that we know journalists have found uh, going back many years, things like difficulties with the OIA, obstruction or non-compliance with the OIA, um, and having to go to the ombudsman a lot, and also just in more general terms, organisations, private, public, whatever, just not engaging, refusing to answer questions, stonewalling them. Are, are we seeing journalists uh, still expressing concern about those things in numbers? Oh, yes, definitely. That's It's a huge issue, I think, for journalism in New Zealand is the blanket of silence in public organisations, the way that information is controlled, particularly in government organisations, but all through corporate organisations as well, and the way that, personally, I find it astonishing the way that we've allowed our essential rights of freedom of speech under the Bill of Rights to be abrogated by organisational comms managers who <laughs> uh, who say you cannot speak about something. Well, why not? So that sort of thing I think happens a lot. But, I mean, more importantly is that journalists are constantly coming up against this, what's called the communications industrial complex, um, the great phrase of Anna Firefields, that they are finding it hard to get information where so 10 or 15 years ago it would be much easier. So in spite of the communications industrial complex, the commercial headwinds facing the media, uh, the increase in hostility and the decline in trust, all of these problems, are journalists happy by and large, or at the very least uh, prepared to say they're satisfied with their choice of career and, and how they're tracking in their job? Well, one thing we have tracked in this survey, the last survey and the survey before that, is job satisfaction. It's remained pretty high, around about 80%. They're a stoic lot, I think. So they one, one finding was a quarter, when asked, almost a quarter, said, yeah, I would be worried about losing my job in the foreseeable That's future. Right. So in spite of that, if you're still prepared to say you're satisfied, we'll get job satisfaction in it. And as the long length of service indicates, people are sticking with it even through periods where it has been difficult and in some instances not all that highly paid. Uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, it is. And I think pretty dystopian, like think four or five years ago, but I think with the stuff buyout and some of the new organisations coming through, some of the changes happening in journalism, there's some positive signs coming through. It's, I think, I'm hugely admiring, really, of New Zealand journalists and how they've stuck to their job and stuck at it in the face of a lot of fairly difficult circumstances over the last four or five, six, seven years. It's Massey University Associate Professor James Hollings talking to me there about the results of the most comprehensive survey yet of New Zealand's journalists, the World's of Journalism Study 2.0, Journalists in Aotearoa New Zealand Survey. You'll find a link to the results of that and more of what James had to say about the findings in the online version of the story that's on our page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. Well, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back after the 10pm news next Wednesday night on Nights with Karen Hay with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.